Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey, kids. You are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, January 16th, 2018. And over the past week, yeah, there's been a lot for people to be angry and pissed off and mad and disappointed and confused about. But one thing, there was the Women's March um, that happened last weekend, which kind of almost de-evolved with people infighting with each other. And then there was a government shutdown. And I don't know, most people think that it's the fault of the vulgar, divisive, orange blob that's in the office right now with the mediocre comb over. But I don't know, there's a lot going on and a lot that makes people want to holler. Like this song by Marvin Gaye in 1971. This ain't living, this ain't living No, no, baby This ain't living, no, 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 no Inflation No chance To increase Finance Bills pile up Sky high Send that boy off To die
we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Once again, that was Marvin Gaye with Inner City Blues, Make Me Wanna Holla, from his What's Going On album from 1971. Yeah, we're kind of going to do a little bit of a 70s throwback here today. Um, our guest artist this week picked a bunch of songs from the 70s, and he's someone that may even remember the 70s more than I do. <laughs> well, this song was very popular back then, and now that we've hollered, I think it's time to dance a little bit to the music. Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And I made a mistake back then, people. Uh, that song was not from the 1970s. It was from 1968, from Sly and the Family Stone, Dance to the Music, from the Dance to the Music album. Wow, 1968. Hey, look, I got it wrong. You know, I wasn't a child of the 60s. I was a child in the 60s, okay? <laughs> but enough about me, because now it's time... <laughs> For my favorite 
part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. <laughs> and I'm sitting in my um, kitchen with one of my favorite storytellers ever. And of course, people who listen to the show every week say, Michelle, every week they're your favorite. But it's true. <laughs> Everybody is my favorite. And I'd like to introduce to you a person with an amazing background, one of the strongest, most competitive passionate and vicious activist I've ever had the pleasure to meet. He's a fantastic raconteur, but please welcome to Fish Out of Agua, the fabulous Richard Cardillo. Thank you so much. Or Cardillo. Much. Either one. I go by both, Cardillo and Cardillo, and there's plenty of stories just around that name, but thank you so much for having me on. So um, I always ask this of every person, Richard, how and where did we meet? We met for the first time um, probably at a storytelling show in the village. And it was the first time I heard you tell a story. And I remember being mesmerized saying, I've got to find out how this is done because I was so new to the storytelling scene. That's the other thing. The first time I ever told a story in front of a crowd was only July of 2016. I've only been oh doing this for God. just a bit over a year. I'd never told a story. But once I got the bug, I started going out to shows. And I remember hearing you tell a story that hung with me for like this whole week. I said, that's what I want to be able to do with a story. Really? Tell a story that oh hangs God. with people. Where was that? I believe it was uh, The Liar Show. Andy Christie's Liar Show. Andy at Christie's the, Liar at Show. At Cornelia Street Cafe. At Cornelia Street Cafe. Saying, well, the premise of the show is there's three people telling true stories and one that's telling a complete and bogus lie. And I'm listening to your story and it had me so wrapped, but I'm thinking, this, this tale is way too, way too fantabulous it's got to be a complete and total lie. And at the end, it wasn't a lie. It was, no, com it was completely a, it, true. Completely true because I lead a very strange life. It was oh, wonderful. And that was the thing that started me on this concept of tell a story that will grab people, that keeps them in, and that leads them on a journey. See, I would have thought that we had met a... That, for uh, at the New York Story Exchange, I don't know why that I, I thought that's what that it was. was the second time I think I met you was there, and the New York Story Exchange story uh, series is just one of my favorites. Still, I mean, I think that that storytelling show has tapped into something very, very special in the storytelling world. And I just I love to go, even if it's just open mic. And I remember doing an open mic one of the nights that you hosted, and I've been on once or twice since then. The New York Story Exchange is a very unique storytelling show. It's run by a woman named Barbara Alaprontis, and she's been doing it since the late 90s. So technically, she's the oldest running storytelling. I think she may predate the moth even. Yes. Um, so, so how did it start? Did you... Did, are you are you a native New Yorker? I what? am originally from White Plains, New York. Okay, so you are a New Yorker, just not a city native. Not a city native. I moved here in 1980 for the first time in Harlem. Lived there for about three or four years, and there's a trajectory of my life that's 
tell an awful lot of stories about. But after that, I lived abroad for for 10 years of my life. I moved from New York City and I lived in Lima, Peru, in the environs of Peru wow. for 10 years. Él hablo español like muy bien, like yes, better than me, sí. I'm sure. <laughs> so, um we're going to get I want to get to that in a minute, sure. but I want I want to ask you, did you um when you were a kid, did you want to be a performer or some type of artist when you were a child? Like how like what kind of family did you grow up in and it like was, what was your schooling like and stuff? Right. It was a very traditional Italian American family where we were very tight knit. I have nine brothers and sisters. Oh my so god. So it's an enormous enormous family catholic very catholic and that's you know it's so i look at my mom and i'm like those days are over that's are you guys not bleed on a sicilian uh my father's sicilian my mother from just south of rome that part of the family and they're and both in italy that, that, that's a mixed marriage for italy it's very mixed it's like it's like puerto rican marrying dominicans it was seriously. the other side of the tracks it was really really tough According to them, even after they, my grandparents had emigrated to the United States, all four of the grandparents. So my parents met here in the United States and then they settled in White Plains. So I'm number six out of nine, but the growing up and the, we were very Catholic, but we were very much family, family oriented with everything. And everything was church and any kind of performances or singing at churches, we did all of that. But in terms of actual, you know, performing, no, I kind of knew early on, I, I, th I thought I wanted to be a teacher, so I knew that that would entail some kind of storytelling and being up in front of a group. So I did that, and I was, you know, pretty successful with that. Well, wait, or what nope. kind of college did you go to? I went to an all-boys Catholic high school first in New Rochelle, New York, Iona Preparatory. I know Iona. I have friends that went there. Then I went to Iona College, because right after high school, the reason my life took a left turn was I came from this deeply, deeply religious family and I thought that this would be my future. So being what I thought was deeply religious, but actually what it was, was deeply in the closet, I joined a monastery. You were a monk? I was a monk for 14 years of my life. Whoa, what kind of monk? I was an Irish Christian brother. Were you like barefoot and had like the fringe Don't of hair I around wish. your no, thing? No, we were the plain Janes of the uh, Catholic Church. We had these long black robes and that's it. Did you make like secret elixirs? Don't like I wish. No breads, no liquors, no. Although there was a lot of drinking, we were mostly we. And I still say we after all these years. I left in 1990. Uh, the Christian Brothers mostly educators. So I knew what I was getting into. But I, I mean, I tell an awful lot of stories about it now. What I was getting into was going deeper and deeper and deeper into a closet because I knew exactly what I was, but I wasn't going to act on it. And oh. it's so funny, Michelle, I look back now at my age, I'm 59, and because I'm a, a rarity, a gay man in his late 50s, early 60s, who's not HIV positive. So I know that there's some kind of juju that was with me at the time. The Holy Spirit is what we'd call him in the Catholic Church, watching over me. But And I was with a vow of celibacy, which I honored, I have no reason to lie about it now, from 1976 to 1990, height of the AIDS epidemic, I wasn't active. That's probably what's kept me alive in this city. That's probably what kept me from being infected. Then I finally decided I can't live this life anymore. I left it. What was the trigger? What was the turning, the tipping point? The tipping point for me was I find, I actually, they sent me to teach in an all boys Catholic high school in Harlem. And I'm there and I knew these feelings weren't going away. I knew, but I wasn't going to act on them. That's why I took my vow. And I was very faithful to my vows and really thought if I just worked harder and harder and harder, these feelings, which I didn't understand because I didn't know another gay guy and I didn't have any concept. There were no role models back then. So I um, 
begged them to give me harder work. And that's when they sent me to Peru. And I kind of went first, and that's the kind of funny thing that I can laugh at now in retrospect, saying this will be really good for me because in Latin America, especially in Peru, there can't be any gay guys. There's no gay life in Latin. Well, let me tell you. <laughs> so I went down there and I'm teaching the poorest of the poor in shanty towns. It was just was a completely different lifestyle. And this is in the 90s? This was actually in the 80s then. I went down there in 1984. Oh my God, this, that's like in the Sandinista days. That was the Sandinista days. There was a horrible, horrible uh, internal war going on in Peru. Uh, there was a group, a terrorist group called the Shining Path. That's right. Sendero Luminoso. And they were the ones that were coming after me and anybody in the church. And finally, when I saw this disparity between the rich, the poor, first world, third world, and I could hide out in the first world, that's when I realized I'm not only hiding out with this, I'm hiding out with my sexuality too. So I finally talked to the people there, you know, my superiors and all, and the Vatican. And I said, I can't do this anymore. And I asked for a dispensation of my vows. And in 1990, it came through. I got on a plane. I left Peru. Now, I had left the brothers but stayed in Peru for like two years, like a gap year kind of thing. And I was teaching in pretty wealthy schools at the time, too. But I um, I wanted to kind of like get used to getting coming out to the family. And it was Strangely enough, I mean, when I came back in 1991, my mom had just passed on the year before that. My dad was on in years, but all nine of my brothers and sisters, I told every one of them individually, took them out to lunch to let them know, you know, about me. I went broke that summer. With all those and you're in your early 30s by this time. And by this time, I'm 32, 33 years old. Wow. And I finally said, this is who I am and I'm going to live this life. And they were like, more power to you, go. Did anybody tell you that they knew it all along? Oh, yeah. What took five, you so long? What took you so long was the biggest thing I got from cousins, some family members. Um, I did have one, my brother, who was only 17 months older than I am, Italian twin. And I remember saying, you know, you got to know I'm gay and I want you to know that. So I told him about it and he shook his head. He said, I am convinced that the only reason you're gay is because you've never met a good woman. So I said, well, you know, Joe, I'm convinced you're straight. Because you've never met a really good guy. <laughs> oh, snap. What did he say about that? He laughed. Do so you guys get along now? We get along perfectly so, well. He, so he got you, married later on in life, and I'm godfather to both his kids. Oh, that's awesome. So, so you had support of your family. I had the support of the you family. You are so lucky very, and very blessed. Much. Oh, now, now, let very me ask lucky. you this. Do you, do you think that if you had... If your life had turned out differently and you had decided to come out when you were a teenager or a young man, do you think you would have had support then? How do you think I you would have been received? I don't think so. I think... Because that would have been the early 70s, right? Right. It was the early 70s, late 60s. I vicariously lived, and that's kind of some of the music that I had picked for this show, was 60s music. I vicariously lived the 60s, Woodstock generation, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones... Sly in the family. I'd lived all of that via my older brothers and sisters. Mm. And I remember when they went through their experimentations, living in um, communes, growing their hair out, uh, shacking up with girlfriends. My mother would say the rosary on her knees every night that we'd be safe. So I just imagine if I came out as a gay guy then, what would have happened? Oh, forget it. It took me until 1990. Oh and God. you're right. I was lucky. I mean, I... I, literally the month after I came back to this country, I met my partner who I was with for 18 years. And he was born and raised in Selma, Alabama. 
Wow. Real Southern gentleman. Wow. And and he's was he like a peer in age of you? Did he? Grow- he was four years older than I was. So th- did he do any of like the civil rights stuff he in the sixties? Not was only he that, young? he w- no. He remembers marching over the Pettus Bridge with Martin Luther King Jr. For real? He remembers the Birmingham oh bombings. Oh my God. He remembers being. He was a member of the first integrated graduating class of Selma High School, and he was one of only four other white people that stayed. Everybody else fled and went to you know, white Christian schools and the black kids stayed in the school because they integrated and he stayed and most of his friends were, you know, black kids from the school. So he lived that and he was so out there. He was probably where I got the, uh, the rebellious resistance protesting streak in me because he lived, I, I would say he cut his teeth at lunch counters in the South. He really did. It was just amazing. Just amazing. But he came out to his family and the father said, guess what? Pack your bags. You're out. And he was estranged from his family for about seven, eight years. Missed his sister's weddings, wasn't invited to them, came up north. And then finally there was a reconciliation. And in fact, both parents before they passed on had met me and loved me. I mean, we got along wonderfully well. Yeah, but like who do, who do you not get along with? Well, Show me that person <laughs> and, and sick me on them. If a... If a Southern gentleman like his father, who they used to call Big Daddy, it reminded me of a Tennessee Williams play, could be enamored by me as a gay man. I figured I do have some charms that I guess I could use with other people that work. Um, wow. So I want to ask you, I want to get back to the activism in, 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 sure. in a second. But yeah. what I, I'm curious to know about is when you left the, the monastery, when you left the order, is that like leaving the military kind of? Do you have to have an honorable dis- Did you tell them you were gay? I like- told them I was gay. I was very open with them. They said, they actually said to me, you know, you can live in the monastery as a gay man as long as you're celibate. And I, I got, maybe this is TMI for your listeners, but here I am 30, I was 29 at the time and I was still a virgin. I still had never been with anybody. So when they said, you know, you could live the rest of your life as a gay man. I said, hell no. No, what's the point? I'm not doing that. Because I took these solemn vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience that I was going to live for the rest of my life as a celibate man. And And when I left, it was kind of an honorable discharge. I did feel like I left on very, very good terms. In fact, I stayed friends with most of the brothers through the years. Now, because I know that a lot of your listeners are going to wonder, the order I'm with went bankrupt. They kind of went out of business because they couldn't pay all the lawyers' fees and liability for all the pedophile brothers that they had. And I had no idea that was going on. I had no idea which is the irony because but I was somebody who said, no, I want to live an honest life. And apparently I was living with brothers who weren't living that honest a life. Like I, I struggle to understand like why do people do it under the, under the veil of, of the church? I never understood that. Don't get it at all. And I think it has something to do with being very closeted and being very in control. And I think now it's so funny that when I hear about, you know, and I'm, I've become a defender of students who have been abused and problems with church people and with coaches and with anything else. The whole Me Too movement right now is really intriguing me because women have finally, finally taught us that no, we're not gonna sit down and take this. We have got to be transparent, gotta be open. And that's kind of a model for all of us from now on. Yeah, well, you know, heads on sticks. Heads on sticks. Heads on sticks. I I mean, sorry, not sorry. 
Yeah. You know, I agree. Heads on sticks. Yeah. Heads on sticks. Heads on sticks. That's where we are now. Sticks. Oh my God. That's where we are. I uh, sometimes I kind of almost dread to see what turn we're gonna have now in 20, 2018, 19, the leading up to the election. I don't know. I don't know if we're turning things. corner. I mean, that's where my activism has really taken over. Now, I mean, through my past before this debacle that we're living through right now. I mean, I was my partner was extremely, extremely activism. He was very much into AIDS activism, anti-Iraq war, because that was the time that the Iraq war was coming right, around Right, like too. Papa Bush. Papa Bush. So that whole movement. And then anything to do with healthcare, he was out there. He was also an extremely, extremely dedicated person to say we need better income equity. In fact, I call him a socialist. He wouldn't have called himself that. But he really thought of himself as having you know, designs to make a socialist society where everybody gets something and that the government takes care of its people. He strongly, strongly believed that. So when it came time to start protesting, I was right by his side. And that's what I did. I, I would be at no neutralities, AIDS uh, protests with ACT UP. I was doing those kind of protests I remember as well. ACT UP. Yeah. I'm, I, I still have a button that's silent, 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 death. So I, I went through that whole movement and then it kind of, my partner passed on in 2012 and my activism kind of took a back, back seat and that sort of ended on November 8th of last year with the election. I just made a promise to myself that I was going to be out there in full vigor and full force just proving to the world that this is not normal. This is not the way we need to live. So you had a second coming I out. Had a second, a second coming, coming out. Absolutely. On so many different levels. I had a second coming out. And I hit the streets heavy. I, I work with two main protest groups now. One is called Rise and Resist. And the other one's Gays Against Guns, GAG. And both oh, of them... Oh, I love that acronym. Uh, it's great. Well... There's so many places you could go with that. Well, that's why they named it Oh, that. my God. It's <laughs> teaching us about all the new laws, which are draconian harbor laws, one which passed a in the House about concealed carry reciprocity of guns to carry things. So people put together these think pieces and these thought pieces, and we call them members of Gag You. So they're, I, I know. They're Gag You. I love it. So, I love it. But I, I am protesting with them on a weekly basis. I go to meetings on a weekly basis with them. I'm just not sitting still. Uh, it's taken its toll. I've got to admit that. But I'm not sitting still for this. So the activism has come back into my life. And every once in a while, I think, you know something? Maybe I'll get a story out of this. I was just, <laughs> I was just about to say that. I mean, you, I know you have a background as an educator. That's how you're making your living at, at the moment as right, an educator. Right. I'm with an educational nonprofit. And what I do now, I'm not teaching students at all. I'm teaching adults. And I work with large urban school districts to rewrite their discipline codes to cut down on suspension, especially of kids of color. So really what I'm doing is I'm breaking the school to prison pipeline. That's fantastic. That's You're doing it, I believe, in like the best possible way because instead of, you know, working with the students to try to keep them from doing things to get suspended, work with the educators Absolutely. to keep them from overreacting or reacting wrongly. That's it. I mean, you know, like, okay, if someone brings a gun to school, that's one thing. But if somebody is like acting out in class, find out why the child is acting up. It's amazing. And the work that I do now... 95% of the time, when I look at the statistics and the data tells the whole story, I'll see all these kids, and there's a preponderance, unfortunately, of kids of color getting suspended for the same things that white kids are not getting suspended for. And we look at where those suspensions are coming from, 
And inevitably, it's from this vast, vast minority of yeah, teachers. Yeah, poverty to prison. Poverty to prison. And they, they are the ones that are noticing these kids and think it's insubordination when they have no cultural competency as to what's going on. So it's been an eye-opener for me. It's exhausting. I love it. I love it. I think this is the right way that we have to go as a country, as a educa uh, public education system, but it's exhausting. I'm getting tired just listening to you. And, yeah. I, and I had a cup of tea and a snack before we started. <laughs> oh, my God. So um, the, the activism that, you, that you're doing today... Um, I think you had you had been arrested recently. Is that I was are, arrested? Are we, are we allowed to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. In okay. fact, I, I actually did tell a story. I think it was at the mall about my arrest. I was arrested in Trump Tower on an act of civil disobedience. It was right after in April that the man we call president um, put in the travel ban for people from seven nations, mm. mostly Muslim nations. Uh, the Supreme Court had knocked that down over and over until this week where they approved it all. So now it's in effect until we can think of different ways to get around it. But we went in there posing as tourists. There were 25 of us and chanting and screaming, no ban, no raids, no walls, nothing like that. And um, we had it planned. I was trained in this. I was with 25 other people and 19 of them were women because everybody knows that this change is going to come from women. It's not going to come from men. <laughs> I know that for a fact. Um, and so many... The oldest person getting arrested was 84 years old. 84? And she had... Talk about cutting your teeth on protest. She had a rap sheet on civil disobedience arrests going back to the Vietnam War. Wow. This woman was like my model. And I was an arrest virgin. That was the first time I ever got arrested. So we spent the night in jail. I mean, we knew what was going to happen. And... Once I got out, I kind of had more vigor to, you know, fight more. But yeah, the arrest was like the climax of an awful lot of stuff going on in my life at that time. That is just incredible. Um, how do you feel that your activism is behind your stories? I think it's almost like a back and forth. The stories feed the activism, but the activism also feeds the stories. And I know it goes back and forth for me. Um, I, I'd like to believe that most of my stories, I don't think all my stories have to teach a lesson. I've certainly told my share of body stories, <laughs> stories just for the fun of it. But I think more than anything, I've tapped into more inner vulnerability after my arrest, after my, you know, making noise in front of Trump Tower and protesting once a week in front of any Trump property in this city. So we have Thursday night and Friday night protests in front of all these different places, demanding his impeachment. And I think that has left me more vulnerable to talk about things I wouldn't have talked about. So, for instance, my coming out, uh, my experiences in a monastery, my life living in Peru, uh, meeting a guy for the first time, going with him through, a, he had an AIDS diagnosis, going with him through, you know, AIDS crisis. And then, unfortunately, he had a mental illness problem as well. So dealing with that as well. Uh, those are the kind of things that I think my activism has fed me enough to remain vulnerable and tell stories about those things. It's so amazing that you discovered storytelling at this time in your life. Right. It's almost like, I mean, I hate to say like fate or meant to be, but sometimes things, I guess, do happen for a reason, that you fell into storytelling it's at just the time that your activism was just blossoming again. Yeah, and it is the most tender story that I have yet to tell about how I ended up on a stage telling a story for the first time about... 
2000, the beginning of 2016, it was actually the end of 2015, I couldn't make ends meet by paying my mortgage and other bills in my house. So I said, I'm going to do this Airbnb thing. And staying with me was a 26-year-old young guy from, from St. Petersburg, Russia. And um, he had, you know, finally gotten used to me and according to him, had never met a gay guy in his life, which... Obviously, that's what Putin wanted them to believe, but not really true. Um, and his English was perfect, but he did say to me, could you recommend some podcasts for me to practice listening to English? So I said, well, listen to them all. I listen to it every week, and you can get that. And he fell in love. He just was head over heels with stories, stories, stories. And he begged me, he said, I know they do these live. Will you take me? And I said, well, I've been. I've been to a number of the different monsters. I've just never put my name in the hat. And a week before, he looked up all the information online. He said, you need to put your name in the hat. You tell stories around the apartment here. Put your name in the hat. I remember going to the Bell House for the first time. He had already researched what the theme was, so I practiced for maybe four or five days, and that's the first time I ever told a story. Did you win? And I won. Yes! <laughs> Another one. And yeah. I won. My first time Me up, too. I won. I, I, won the, I won the first time I put I my hooked. name in the hat. Is that, is, is that, it, it happens more often than you think. You're right. You know, first I thought it was like, oh, I'm special. It's like, oh, I'm not special. Yeah. Wow, so your, your Russian uh, roommate. Right. Well, that, did he ever tell a story? He, he's building up to it now. He had, he's moved out from my apartment, but since he's gone back, married his, his young bride, 27-year-old, just like him, from St. Petersburg. They both moved back here because he's on a work contract with a company that he works for. And he is really working now on being able to get good enough to get in front of a crowd and tell a story. Wow, that's fantastic. So it's that's come amazing. full circle. It's come full circle. <laughs> now, you've done Risk. You've done The Moth. You've done most of the high-profile storytelling shows yes. that can be done in New York City now. Right. Um, how do you, what role do you think storytelling can or should take with Via V activism? Like, how, how, how do you think that they can work together and support each other? Yeah, I think now uh, that it's going to be the nexus to get people even more involved. I went to an event, the event of all women storytelling. And Michelle, you were one of the people I know, who told I know, yeah. Story. It, it was called Art, Art Humanity, Humanity and, and Activism. Activism. We Persist. It was put together by Nicole Ferraro. <laughs> this is the second uh, right. event that, that she's done to, to further the cause. But again, to your question of how storytelling feeds this, that night, for me, kind of crystallized, we're going to get through this by telling our stories. How important it is to tell our stories and to hear eight different women get up there and tell heartfelt, hysterical, tragic sometimes, but really poignant stories right from the heart and soul. And I'm convinced that that's going to be our way out of this morass, of this mess. I think Telling so. our stories and sharing our stories. Yeah, I think so too, because you know we our stories are the ones that have been discounted and, and dismissed. And now it's time that, no, we, we, we won't shut up. To quote uh, Robin Beatty, who's another storyteller and activist, she did a show, there was a, a festival this summer that Asha Novik put together Speak with up. Nicole yeah. and some other people. It was called Speak Up, Rise Up. And yeah. it was all stories about activism. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Robin put together a show called uh, No, We Won't Shut Up that featured several women uh, talking about everything from racism to gentrification to sexism to um, uh, being harassed sexually. 
And that, to me, is the way we're going to get out. People hearing stories, true, true stories, right from the soul that leaves people, that leave the storyteller vulnerable to all of this. That's going to be our ticket out. You think? Oh, I do. I really think that what's going to turn things around is people actually, because this country is so divided right now, red, blue, south, north. I think it's people getting to know other people. And the way that they're going to get to know other people is through their stories. It's true. I, I, I really agree with that because a lot of times when somebody says they hate somebody, it's because they don't know anyone like that. Like you said, you, know, you were the first gay person that yep. somebody met. Yep. Um, there have been times in my life where I was the first Puerto Rican that somebody met. <laughs> and yeah, and people would say, well, I like you. You're different. Mm -hmm. And if I, if I only had like cash money or coin for every time someone said that to me when I was growing up, and if that, if in a way made them more receptive to other Latin people or people of color, Absolutely. then I guess it was okay because once you know somebody, you're not afraid of them anymore. Yep. That's, a, and I think... Did I, I think I explained myself terribly. No, yeah. I think you explained yourself perfectly okay. with that because that's, and I, that's what I believe will be the turning point for most of us now, hearing other people's stories. Yeah. I mean, as long as the person connect. wants, wants, you know, he who has ears, let them hear. As long as the person is receptive to listen, because we all know there are some people that are just so set in their ways. They don't, they, they put up like blind ear blinders. So they don't want to hear. They don't want to see. Right. What, what, what do you say about to those people or about that? When I find people and it's, I'm practicing this more when I go to schools in the South. The first thing that I do is I practice not speaking to that person and listening more than ever as much as it rips my heart out my soul out uh as much as i have to bite my tongue many times to listen to their stories and i listen how come you believe and challenging it what's your belief behind that so for instance when i hear somebody say well this politician who we want to elect senator in alabama these are all political lies i don't say you're wrong we have all these women that are what i say to them is how come you believe that and what would lead you to believe that? That's just one example of it. I remember having a tough conversation with somebody right after the election and just drawing them out with questions and just listening. How it's about time, chickens coming home to roost, we got this government in here, the Republicans are back in, after eight years of this mess that we had with Obama. And I, but I just kept asking questions. What was it about the last eight years that you didn't like? What was it that you did, you found so... Uh, repulsive or you found so uh, against anti everything you believe that you are now so happy that things have turned around and eventually what it came down to when he, he finally had to admit it and he felt ashamed he said I have to admit it. it's because Barack Obama is a black man uh, not that all people from the south are like that I don't want to stereotype there's anybody. one individual there's, there's one, one individual. individual and there's one conversation let's be clear that's it there's one individual who happened to be from the south and he said, you know, I, I know that I am prejudiced against this man because he was black. That led to a deeper discussion about his life. Now, all of that takes time. All of that is, it's kind of like making the soil fertile so that something else could take. Did I want to convince him that our present president is a kook and that I am, to, I, why? I'm not going to change this man's mind. And I know that. But I did find common ground when I said, yeah, there are things that I'm afraid of because I don't understand that. To share that with him and to give him the opportunity to say, yeah, that I'm afraid of that I believe in because I'm afraid. So for him to say that for the first time 
was progress. It's slow. It's so slow. So it's getting people to admit to their vulnerability Absolutely. and their fears. Yeah. And we're human. So we all have the same vulnerabilities. Yes. And we all have the same fears. So um, a little fish told me that you, I, I, I don't want to say a little birdie because this is fish out of Bible. Absolutely. A, a little pecao, tell me, a little bacalaito <laughs> told me that you have a story for us. I do. And I've been a teacher now for over 25 years. Now that I'm not teaching students, but I'm teaching adults. However, when I taught students, I got known automatically for how much I came to bat for those kids. I would go to prisons, to Rikers. I would go with gang members to funeral homes to bury other gang members. I was on their side in foster care courts. I would always come to bat for the students. And I really did believe that eventually, as much as I stood up for them, this is what was gonna get me in trouble, that my badassery and my brashness was gonna get me in trouble. But what it was that got me in trouble was my baguettes and my brownies. Because that's the hidden thing that I didn't talk about yet today. Is I'm a baker as well. I'm a passionate home baker. I bake all the time. Uh, for my whole life, I've been the go-to baker for my family, for other people. And I figured what better way to combine the two than start bringing my baking to schools. Uh, not too long ago, I was given a opportunity to work with a school in the South Bronx that was put on a failing school list. They were going to close that school at the end of the year. Uh, it was about 1,200 kids. On any given day, 50% of the kids didn't show up for class. Those that showed up weren't kind of learning. Uh, they, the teachers weren't happy. High suspension rates. Standardized tests were horrible. And I said, go in and do something. So I said I would agree if I could work and collaborate with others. I wasn't going to be the savior. I truly do believe that the way I do my work is to let people do the best that they can do. And I went into that school and I started working with them. But when you go into a school with that much dysfunction, where do you start? Well, you start with the crossing guards all the time. <laughs> They're the ladies that know everything. And then there were some men crossing guards. So I started cooking them every morning a dozen homemade bagels. And I'd show up every day with the bagels. And after we'd eat them, we'd sit around and they'd fill me in on what teachers were having problems, what gangs were coming into the school, what the faculty had to do, what kids' families were in trouble. And I learned so much from them. Well, the news of those ba uh, bagels spread, let's say, like butter. <laughs> and then the um, custodians and the office staff wanted something. So I started teaching them classes and bringing brownies and bringing cupcakes and bringing pies. Then the teachers wanted it in, in on it as well. So I would have after-school meetings where we'd always have my baked goods featured and they'd learn tip, tips about classroom management and skills. Sure enough, within nine months, we started turning things around. Was it because of my baked goods? Who the hell knows? Probably not. But they were learning how to do things. Standardized test scores, absolutely amazing. Attendance, up by 80%. Suspensions, down by 80%. Things were really going well. The superintendent of the Bronx schools comes up to me and she says, I'd like you to present how this happened at the all NYC DOE meeting of all superintendents. And it's down near City Hall in a building they call the Tweed Building. So I said, I'd love to make a presentation. And I go and I'm, they announce me. They send out an email and they said, Richard Cardillo is going to announce what's going on with this school. And the principal of my school, as a joke, had replied to the email, but she CC'd everyone on it. And she put, Richard Cardillo, you got to meet this guy. His snickerdoodles are the crack cocaine 
of the NYC DOE. Ha ha. Left it at that. I make the presentation. Went really great. No problem at all. One week after that, I get the certified letter to my desk. My boss gets one of them too from the NYC DOE. Dear Richard Cardillo, this is to inform you that we are starting a formal investigation into the baked goods that you're bringing into the school. Please come prepared to defend yourself and bring your recipes with you. Like, what the heck is going on with this? I show up down at the DOE headquarters and they had a lawyer there. They said I could bring a lawyer, but I had no reason to bring a lawyer. And they said, listen, we can end all of this right now. We have reason to believe that you are baking edibles for your students. I said, why would I do something like that? I would never do something like that. They're like, listen, we can cut through all of this. Tell us what your sources are. I said, well, I use King Arthur flour. And they're like, no, 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 not those sources. What's your product? I'm like, there is no product. They were making me out to be the Walter White, the Breaking Bad of the NYC DOE. They finally believed me. I left. I go to the school the next day, and one of the custodians calls me over. He says, oye, Richard, all the kids in the gangs heard what you're doing, and they're willing to pay you if you tell them where you get your source product from. I'm like, there is no sources. They wouldn't believe me. They would not believe me. One week after that, there's a new chancellor regulation that goes into effect in all New York City schools that says that no baked goods can be sold or distributed in any public school in the city of New York. Again, was that because of me? Who the hell knows? But they said it was for physical fitness reasons. And I said, give the kids back their recess. And I started fighting for the kids more. Give them phys ed again. You cut that out. Now, I got to come clean. Through the years, being such a passionate, wonderful baker, and I can blow my own horn for that, have I had friends that have asked me to bake them edibles? All the time. Have I actually baked them edibles? All the time. But I didn't mix it up. I did not mix it up. There was no mix up with this. I will come clean in another way and say, yes, I did put special ingredients in every one of those baked goods in the schools that I went to. I pumped those things up with cupfuls of tender, loving care. I put heaping tablespoons of resilience and empathy into everything I made. And I made sure that I sent the message to each kid in that class that cookies can change the world. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Oh, my God. Thank you for putting the act in activism and being the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down <laughs> Thank you. in the most delightful way. Thank no, you. we're not doing show tunes. We're not doing <laughs> no, we're I am not so not a show tune. I'll, I'll sing Led Zeppelin, but I don't, uh, I don't Me I too. Don't, I'm not going down that road. Uh, uh, uh. So, oh, my God, that story is so great. Uh. So if... Space cakes. Oh my God, I can't believe that. Where did you get your source material from? Oh I love it. my I love it. God. So if somebody wants to follow you and see where you're going to be performing right. come in, in, you know, coming coming up, uh, where can they find you? I post on, I don't have my own website yet. You need to get I one. I need to get one. But I post everything on my Facebook page, which is wide open and public. Uh, Richard Cardillo. I just, all one word. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Richard Cardillo as well. And I post all the performances I'm going to do there. I also post on YouTube every one of my videos of all my stories. Oh, that's I, great. I have about I 20, oh 24, 25 of them now. And they're all on the Richard Cardillo page of YouTube. So if okay. you go to that website, you can hear even this story about the baked goods, baking edibles. 
So. Wow. So R-I-C-H-A-R-D-C-A-R-D-I-L-L-O. Eso que sí. Sí, Richard Carlillo. Eso oh, mismo. my God. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being on the show. I, in closing, I have one question. Uh, we open with saying, how do we meet? So I close with, with this variations on the same question. If you had one thing to say to the child who finds themselves being the fish out of agua for whatever reason, Perhaps because they have the audacity to think that they can become more than what the people around them think they have the right to be. Maybe they have other aspirations that just don't mesh with wherever they are in the society that, that they're in. What would you say to that child? I, I have a phrase that I give to almost every student that's in that. And I work with a lot of LGBTQ youth and youth groups in the cities. I've also worked with kids really struggling with trauma. And I always say the same thing to them. Don't spend a whole lot of time in your life trying to change who you are. Don't spend much time at all trying to be something that you're not. Spend as much time in the world as you can on embracing the beauty that you are right now. Well, that's my message to kids. <laughs> and to adults. <laughs> Ojalá. Yes. Right. Thank, Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Hug on the Hug air. Hug on the air. Hug on the air. <laughs> Woohoo! Hug on the air.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Oye Como Va by Santana from their Abraxas album in 1970. And that was another song that Richard Cardillo picked for his episode. Yeah, we kind of went on the Wayback Machine there with, with these songs, but it's kind of fitting, you know, because it almost seems like things are coming full circle. Yeah, we said earlier that, you know, I wasn't a child of the 60s. I was a child in the 60s. And I can remember being a little girl, like, playing color forms of Barbies behind the couch and listening to the grown-ups talking about the movement and the establishment and the man and all the unrest that was happening in the country at this time. I mean, people forget that 1968, which is basically 50 years ago, yeah, oh my God, 50 years. People thought the world was going to end and we were all going to be lying out in the street with our throats slit from ear to ear. There were student protests in Berlin, London, Paris, Stockholm, Prague, and in uh, The Hague. There were riots in Washington, D.C., Newark, L.A., and Detroit. And that time period was, I, to me, I mean, you know, contact me on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org if, if I'm wrong. But I think that that was the last time that the populace, the people, la gente, was together, united against what they perceived as injustice. And it looks like that time is happening all over again. Think about that, kids. And while you're thinking about it, that's our show. This has been Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo on Radio Free Brooklyn. And just so you know, the, the Radio Free Brooklyn programming is created by independent hosts and programmers. And the views expressed here by the hosts and guests and their, their programs do not represent the views of Radio Free Brooklyn, its staff, or management. Thanks for listening, guys. And um, stay tuned for Brooklyn Brand Bandstand next. We're going to close with a weather report and the song Birdland from their uh, Heavy Weather record in 1977, another song that Richard picked. And we'll see you guys next week. Woohoo!